The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Before we begin today, I just want to remind you that we only have a couple more weeks before my memoir comes out on October 4th. It's called The Family Outing. It's the story of how everyone in my family, my dad, my mom, my sister, my brother, and myself came out and what happened next. Now, if you're thinking she talks about this every week, I already pre-ordered mine. Thank you. I so appreciate it. It really does help me so much when you pre-order. And if you haven't gotten yours yet, there's still time. You can find The Family Outing out by HarperCollins anywhere you buy your books. Thanks. Now to the show. Today, we're talking to Kwame Christian. Kwame founded and runs the American Negotiation Institute. And I've talked about negotiating with him before. Kwame's greatest gift is that he understands how to have difficult conversations. And with his new book, he's putting that gift to particularly good use. The book is called How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. Now, race is a tender topic for a lot of people. For me, maybe for you, for Kwame, certainly. He describes himself as a reluctant leader in this area. He practiced civil rights law early in his career. It burned him out, and he avoided it after that pretty much entirely. Even after the murder of George Floyd in 2020, he didn't want to lean into it. And then his wife, Whitney, called him in a bit. She pointed out that Kwame asked people to lean into the hardest conversations regularly, but he wasn't doing it himself. Kwame remembers exactly what she told him. As a Black man who is in the negotiation space, which is is rare, and somebody who has a background in negotiation and conflict resolution, which is even rarer, you are a leader and your voice is missing here. That resonated deeply. And Kwame started to rethink his approach. I said, listen, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm going to stay in my my zone of genius here. I'm not going to tell people how they should think about race. I'm going to tell them how they can talk about race. I'm going to focus on the communication, the connection, the conflict resolution. And that's been really, really rewarding. And here we are. No matter where you are starting in today's conversation, we're going to break down some tools that will help you to talk more honestly and more effectively about race. Here's Kwame. I'm seeing a lot of fears for anybody who wants to have a difficult conversation about race. So, for instance, we're afraid of offending people. We're afraid of that awkwardness. We're afraid of the discomfort that we'll feel. We're afraid of potentially getting canceled or ostracized or shut down for sharing how we feel. And so all of these fears hold us back. And so I wanted to give people a a, a resource that not only address the skill set, but also the mindset as well. Because we have to address that emotional component that holds us back. But then we also have to address the fact that there's a massive skills gap when it comes to these conversations for everybody. And so if there's a way that we can approach these conversations in a way that's respectful and constructive, and that's what I wanted to provide. I really appreciated the way that you called out the difference between skills and talent here and suggested that Like, this is something that can be learned. Did you always intuit that? 
Well, yes and no. I'll say yes because for me, I, I'm a recovering people pleaser, so it's not natural for me to have these conversations. But also no because I um I didn't know that naturally. I had to discover it. My undergrad degree is in psychology, and uh, there's a joke in psychology that uh, people go into psychology to study themselves <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so I wanted to overcome social anxiety and those types of fears. And so I discovered how you could how you can overcome those challenges. And then when I went to law school, I learned how to negotiate. I learned the skill set. And that was really the first time that I, I fully appreciated the fact that it's a skill, not a talent. Even though I identified as a people pleaser, I could learn how to negotiate, how to resolve conflict, how to advocate for myself. And so it was really that realization for me that made me want to take this unique direction in my career. Because like I say, the uh, the motto of the American Negotiation Institute is we believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. So I want to provide everybody with those skills as well. Kwame has a framework that forms the backbone of his teaching. He calls it compassionate curiosity. It's helpful whenever you're trying to talk about something that feels hard. This framework is a tool that you could use in any difficult conversation you have, whether at work or at home. So it's three steps. Number one, acknowledge and validate emotions. Number two, get curious with compassion. And number three, joint problem solving. And so you could use them interchangeably. It's flexible. So sometimes there's not an emotional issue at the time. So you can get curious with compassion, asking open-ended questions with a compassionate tone to gather information and, and create some rapport. Then you get to joint problem solving where you're working together to solve the problem. But then an emotional issue might come up. And so you know, okay, it's time to acknowledge and validate the emotions. And you can flip this internally for yourself as a tool of introspection and emotional regulation. So you're going to acknowledge and validate your own emotions, get curious with self-directed compassion to figure out where that emotionality is coming from. And then with joint problem solving, we're reconciling the differences between your heart and your mind. What would satisfy you emotionally in this situation? And then what problem do you need to solve in order to better the situation? So that is beautifully articulated. And then you try to put it into practice against the backdrop of a modern life, and it gets messy very quickly. And so I actually would love to talk through how you apply that framework to some specific situations. Yes, oh. let's do it. You know, I'll start with one that you you referenced in the book, and I, I loved the, the exchange, the back and forth. It was actually in your section on compassionate curiosity, and there was the example of, uh, I think it was a manager had said to you, let's say you, um, I think that this person, let's call her Joan Chen, is worthy of being promoted. What do you think? And your first reaction, your gut reaction is like, yeah, they're very good at their job, but I don't think so. Then what? Then how do you apply the framework to figure out what's going on there for yourself before you respond to your colleague. Remember, when we think about the gut reaction, the gut is located in your amygdala, <laughs> right? And a lot of times <laughs> that gut reaction is really just a bias. Right. And so a lot of times, for example, there's a bias against Asian Americans when it comes to leadership positions. That's a challenge that they've faced. And so let's say that manager is trying to do some introspection to figure out where that position came from. So acknowledge and validate the emotion. What is that gut response? I don't think Miss Chen would be good for this position. That is 
the emotion that I'm arriving at. Okay, well, what made you come to that conclusion? Now we're transitioning into getting curious with self-directed compassion, right? She has great work. She does a really good job. So that's not what it is. How does she interact with other people? Well, she interacts really well. Is she respected on the team? Yes, she is. Then how did you come to that conclusion? There's, there is no objective criteria that that validates that conclusion. Right. And so, okay, reconciling the differences between a heart and mind with joint problem solving. What would satisfy me emotionally? I want to be a person who is equitable, who's fair. Um, and then what decision do I need to make in this moment? Well, if if she checks every single box and I don't have any legitimate reason to not promote her, then the answer is clear. I need to make that decision to promote. And so this might seem intellectually laborious and the first few times it will be but right. as you start to get through this this process and practice it'll be a lot faster as i read through your book i came to this sort of larger conclusion which is that the thing is race is a subtext in almost every conversation we have in the office but many of us especially those of us with any sort of privilege mostly for a lot of different reasons are loath to acknowledge that Maybe we have our own feelings around that. Maybe we're benefiting from the privilege and we would like to instead just not talk about that. Like, let's put the conversation someplace else. Where do you see race come into the conversation that people choose to avoid? <laughs> the, the tempting response is everywhere. And I, I think it's because, again, we're afraid it's awkward and we don't want it to be a legitimate factor. Yeah. But I think in a lot of these situations, we need to be willing to actually lean in and consider it as a potential issue. And if it is, let's lean into it and discuss it wholeheartedly amongst the other issues. And if it's not, let's have a discussion to make sure that we thought about it and let people know that we thought about this. And then we have decided maybe not in this situation. And when we're having those conversations, particularly when they're one-on-one -on -one conversations, I think that the amazing ability of the amygdala to jump in there and immediately cloud the potential that we might have for actually being reasoned in thinking about these conversations is so massive. How do we escalate that when we're working with others whose emotions are clouding the conversation? That's where compassionate curiosity comes into play, because it's a framework that you could put into any situation. And I think, Jesse, it's important to acknowledge here that if somebody else is having an emotional response, it's very likely that you will have a reciprocal emotional response as well. I think that's something to acknowledge, the fact that when we are emotional, we're not thinking at our highest level, right? It's going to be very tough. Once we see the the potential of a, an emotional response from the other side, uh, we want to acknowledge that immediately. And in, when it comes to difficult conversations about race or difficult conversations in general, there is an aversion to wrestling with the emotionality of the other side. We don't feel comfortable with it. And so we say, you know what I'm going to do to solve this problem? I'm going to pretend it's not there. Jesse, this might surprise you. That doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work. And so really it's, it's keeping it as simple as possible, taking it as an opportunity to empathize with the other side and acknowledge how they're feeling and then give them the space to decompress. So for instance, if somebody comes to you and shares a, a microaggression that they've experienced and it's upset them and they come to you as an ally, um, you can say something like this. I can tell that this had a significant impact on you. Can you tell me a little bit more, right? Then give them the space, listen, 
summarize and say, that makes sense. I can understand why you feel that way. It must be frustrating that blank. And then give them more space. Tell me more. What else? And then as they start to calm down, then you transition into getting curious with compassion. And this is where your allyship can really start to shine. What can I do to support you in this situation? How can I help you? What do you think we can do to make sure that this type of stuff doesn't happen to you again and maybe not happen to other people as well, right? And it's just really smooth, but it takes a lot of practice. Kwame just glossed over something that he has become very good at. Since I think the rest of us need more practice, I'm going to spell it out. Kwame is not suggesting that we need to agree with or judge someone else's feelings as correct. He's encouraging us to validate someone else's feelings. He's asking us to empathize without judgment, to say, hey, I see that you're sad, not I think you're right to be sad. This level of empathy isn't natural for a lot of us. We have to learn and practice it. That's true for Kwame, too. This is something that uh, shocks my friends when I tell them this. When I, I took a strengths finder test and it ranks your strengths from 1 to 34, empathy was number 34 for me. I'm not naturally empathetic, but I learned how to become empathetic. It is a skill that can be developed. And so when people say, Kwame, I don't feel like doing this. I'm not good at doing this. I'm not a touchy-feely emotional person. Okay, cool. I mean, I wasn't good at a lot of things when I first tried. <laughs> so that's not, that's not a good excuse. And if we don't address that emotional component, we are going to struggle to accomplish our goals in this conversation. And it's tough to do when you care about the person and you agree with the person. But Jesse, it's even more difficult to do when you don't agree with the person and you might find their position to be wholly undesirable. Let's go with undesirable here, right? Yeah. And so it's the exact same approach when you disagree with somebody wholeheartedly. I'm going to acknowledge and validate their emotions, but I'm going to separate facts from feelings. So I have to separate the emotional side from the factual side and suspend my agenda in these conversations in order to address the emotional side and then earn my right to have a more logical conversation. You called it suspending your your agenda. You also need to manage your own personal emotions. And as you said earlier, when somebody else's emotions kick up, yours often do too. So how do we do that with grace? <laughs> with difficulty, Jesse. <laughs> with difficulty. It's tough. I'm, and I, I want people to, to understand that is really difficult to do. It's still difficult for me to do. We both have young children and we know that if we, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? <laughs> Once it's out, it's out. And sometimes in these conversations, if you make these types of mistakes, it's really tough to recover. And so slowing down is almost always going to be the right answer. And so what I like to do is slow things down, especially when I want to respond quickly. Because what I've found is that the faster I want to respond, <laughs> the more inappropriate the comment. <laughs> that is such, such good advice. One thing that you expertly point out is the best way to be in conversation around a lot of the most difficult aspects of this stuff is to spend most of your time listening by spending most of our time listening, it sets us up to have a better conversation and ultimately to have more control. 
Yes, when I think about control, I'm not thinking about it in a Machiavellian type of manipulative type of way. I'm just thinking about it in terms of taking responsibility for the well-being of this conversation and making sure that I keep the conversation steering in a productive direction. The other added benefit is that you're less likely to make a mistake when you're not talking. <laughs> so it's a, a safety mechanism as well. And so yeah. I like to steer the conversation by asking questions. And listeners, here's an example. Jessie is very modest, but she's a great negotiator. And you can see it by the way she asks questions in this podcast. So I'm doing the majority of the talking, but Jesse is steering the conversation by asking the questions. This is a really great example of how these conversations can and should go when you're doing a good job of keeping the conversation moving in a productive direction. You ask questions with a compassionate tone and guide the conversation in the right direction. Um, there's another really important aspect to that conversation being productive, Kwame, and that is that we trust each other. And we trust each other enough that we will assume best intentions. So I'll give you an example. I began this interview a little bit on the sloppy side. I fessed up right away. I am tired today. And if we had not begun with a sense of trusting each other and a sense that we both had our best intentions in mind, I could see that you could be put off right away by that. But instead, you hung with me until we found our, our through way, as it were. Um, Absolutely. How do you even begin to establish a culture in which it's expected that we um, we assume best intentions? I mean, there's a real big difference between saying that and feeling that. Yeah, well, I again, I like to try to, to lead the dance as much as possible. So I want to show people how I expect them to act through my behavior, too. And so that's the way that I'd lead the conversations. We're going to take a quick break here when we come back. More with Kwame Christian. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. It's one thing to encourage difficult conversations broadly, but success comes down to managing them in the moment. And that's hard. It drops us right in the middle of all of our feels. What happens when someone calls you out? Speaking for myself, I have to fight an immediate feeling of defensiveness, of just saying, you misunderstood me. And that's absolutely the wrong way to go. It's adding insult to injury, completely invalidating someone's feelings in the process. That's where Kwame's compassionate curiosity framework comes in. We have to start from the inside out, Jesse. So most likely, the people who are listening to this podcast don't want there to be racism in their organization. I feel like that is a, a safe assumption, I hope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and so that is their that is their hope. Yep. That hope can often fuel the confirmation bias for them to say, I hope that there's not racism here. Therefore, that is the conclusion I will start with. And then also that positivity says, listen, I like Jesse. I like the person who I'm talking to. I want them to feel good. And so I don't want them to think that there's racism here. So that's going to be, again, my conclusion. 
there's not racism here and denying it is going to make this person feel better. And so what we do is we try to explain it away. No, Jesse, it's, listen, I understand how it could come off that way, but trust me, I know those people, they're okay. And listen, let me give some self-disclosure here. I'm not perfect at this. And as a leader, I remember one time where there was a microaggression related to gender where I found myself responding in this way. Oh, no, I know those guys. They're okay. They didn't mean it that way. I'm so sorry. I hung up the phone and then I went and I sat down, ate some cinnamon toast crunch and started watching TV. And then I started to think about my book (laughs) that I just wrote. And I said, oh my gosh, Jesse, I did it too. And so I called my, uh, my colleague back and I apologized. I said, listen, I misread that. That was wrong. I rectified the situation. And I think it's important to realize that a lot of times these interactions happen so quickly that you won't even recognize those points of failures. And so you have to be honest enough with yourself and humble enough to come back and 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 have the conversation the right way, even if you failed the first time. I, I love that point that you're making there, that our relationships with each other in real time in office settings, um, they're rich, they're vibrant, they're always moving. And therefore, because we are human, we are always in ways that we are not aware of uh, in danger of hurting each other. And that is that is just a condition of our humanity. And the opportunity in that condition is the opportunity for repair, to go back as you did, call somebody up and say, hey, I'm sorry, how can I make that right? Is there a way to make that right? Um, The thing is, frankly, in the United States, we're not that great at apologizing. Creating the, the environment for repair is actually pretty central to strong negotiation and to strong conflict resolution, right? Absolutely. And I think it comes down to a couple of things. Again, I think it's it's mindset and skill set. The mindset here that's required is humility. And the skill set is how to apologize. I, I don't think there's enough material out there on how to apologize. And that's why I put it in my book, Jesse. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so um, really one of the, the highlights here is that a lot of times an effective apology comes down to the distinction between if and that. And so you could say, I'm sorry if you felt bad versus I'm sorry that you felt bad. And let's break down why. Because if you say, I'm sorry if you felt that way, what we're doing is we're calling into question the validity of their emotions. And we're saying, listen, what I said was completely above board. But if you're so fragile that you felt hurt by that, that's your problem. And I'm sorry that you are so fragile. That often makes things worse. Yes. No, what we have to do is we need to fully own it and say, I'm sorry that my words and or actions led to this negative impact for you. And then we need to commit to doing better in the future. That's it. And that second part is actually the more important part. You're right. Getting the language down is right. But the repair part is bigger than the apology. It is about peace of mind. It is about that humility, that character that you reference. Um, And I would argue that it's skills-based as well, that you can learn this, but you have to commit to it. Absolutely. And really, for me, I I agree that second part is the most important part because what's the point (laughs) of apologizing if we're just going to keep on making the same mistake over and over again, right? And so I think that's really how you can determine whether or not an apology is sincere by their commitment to do better in the future. And I think for me, I approach all human interaction through the lens of negotiation. And I want to invite the other person into that conversation to actually talk about this because 
most likely if I'm the person who has committed this infraction, it's, it is possible that I might unwittingly make this type of mistake again. And so in a lot of ways, I actually need their help to know how to treat them better. Yeah. Well, so let's reverse roles in the interaction that we talked about earlier. Now you are the person who needs to go to your colleague or maybe your manager and say, that joke you made in that meeting, that was inappropriate. I felt bad. How do you ensure that you, the conditions are safe enough for you to have that conversation in the first place? I don't know if we can ensure that it's safe, but we can ensure that we use the right strategy to put ourselves in the best position to succeed. And so I like simplicity here and uh, just a clear framework that people can put into play. So the one that we'll use here is situation, impact, invitation. So situation, impact, invitation. This is the way to start difficult conversations in general. The hardest part of a conversation oftentimes is the beginning. <laughs> it's like jumping in a cold pool. You just have to jump in and make it as quick and painless as possible. So we start off with the situation. We're going to describe the situation using what I call naked facts. So these are facts that are stripped of all interpretation, all judgment, and things like that. So no matter what side of the issue you're on, you can agree that that is, in fact, what occurred. Then the next step would be the impact. What was the impact as it relates to you? So people can't say, no, Kwame, that's not how you felt. It's kind of weird because you're not in my brain, right? And so I'm going to talk <laughs> about the impact as it relates to myself. And then the last one is invitation. I don't want to ambush people. So I want them to feel as though they have a choice. But the choice isn't, hey, let's not talk about this. <laughs> the choice is between now or later. So we'll say, hey, in that meeting, you said X, Y, Z. And it made me feel uncomfortable because of ABC. And I'd like to have a conversation with you because you're somebody I respect and we're going to be working together. So I'd love to talk this through to make sure that we can work together at a high level going forward. Just keep it really short and sweet. And that probably took about 15 seconds, but the shorter, the better. And this is a really smooth and simple way to enter the conversation. That almost feels easy enough that I could imagine doing it. But I say almost and I stress almost because there's a lot of emotion involved in that too, right? But I think what makes these conversations so challenging is the potential for conflict. And yet that's where the opportunity is too. So in the same way, you use the pool analogy, you stand there, you count to 10 and you jump in. Like what is the conversational way of doing that? I like to use the, the metaphor of driving in a car. And so for me, I want to have my higher level processing be the driver of the car. But the amygdala, the emotions are always going to be in the car. So you can be in the car, but you just can't have your hand on the wheel. You don't make the decisions. I make the decisions. I think about the emotions that I feel as a signal. What is it telling me? And this is where the introspection comes in. Because a lot of times we'll assume that the emotions are telling us, hey, don't have this conversation. That's the right answer. You feel this discomfort? I'm telling you, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. But really, what it's often telling us is that you care. This is important. And you should be on, like, you should be ready for this. Now I look at the emotions as a signal that I should have the conversation. And the, the reality is that a lot of times the, the only true way for me to address those emotional challenges and reach a point of peace is if I have the, diff the, the difficult conversation. And 
it's like they say, the best things in life are on the other side of difficult <laughs> conversations, right? You have to actually have, have it in order to experience that emotional freedom. Okay, so this is the point in the conversation where I realized something. I was holding back a bit because I felt I hadn't fully done my homework. Sure, I'd read his book, but there was so much I haven't read yet on race in America. There's so much I didn't know that I don't know or have forgotten. And I just didn't want to say the wrong thing to get things wrong. So I told Kwame, and he was prepared for this. A lot of times what we end up doing is we start to put these little benchmarks in place and we keep on moving the goal lines because we're afraid of the conversation, right? So we think to ourselves, okay, well, when I achieve this level of wokeness, then I could have the conversation. Then we find something else and we say, well, you know what? Let me get that one. Let me read that book and then... I'll have the conversation. And really what it is, is the amygdala over-intellectualizing the challenge. Mm -hmm. Because really, who's <laughs> to say what is the appropriate amount of history that we should know before having the conversation? So for you and, and anybody else listening, just realize that by listening to this podcast alone, you have more knowledge on how to have difficult conversations about race <laughs> than the average person. So, so don't let those things hold you back. Um, I so appreciate you saying that. And, and you're right. And the thing that I want to continue to try to remind our listeners whenever we have conversations about race, which is all the time in different ways on Hello Monday, um, is that we all live within a racist system. And there is a tendency to personalize this rather than to understand ourselves as humans within a racist system where we where it grew up in us like a like a seed, like a culture. Right. When you overpersonalize it, um, the conversation also becomes more difficult. But when you back up and say, these were the tools I was given and now I want to try to rise to the challenge of doing better and being more present with the people that I spend my time with then you have an opportunity. Absolutely. And one of the things I talk about in the book is giving humble disclaimers before starting these conversations too. Because just like you said, hey, I don't feel as though I know enough to contribute in a meaningful way to this conversation. That is how one can start a difficult conversation about race. You could say, it seems like there might be something to discuss here. I'm not exactly sure, and I, I need some guidance here. And I apologize in advance for anything that I say that, that may sound offensive. I will probably make mistakes because I still have a lot to learn. But I want to encourage you to feel safe correcting me and letting me know how I can do better. And I think it's really important for us to, again, inject some humility and just be honest about the situation. The conversation's still worth having, but we have to also acknowledge where we might not be strong or might not be as well-read as we want to be. These disclaimers sound super helpful. This whole framework seems super helpful, but something sticks out about all of Kwame's work to me. There's something unfair about these conversations, the way they happen. So much of the work lands on people of color in majority white spaces and LGBTQ people in majority straight spaces. And so I said so to Kwame. Ah, the F word. It's always a matter of time before we get to the F word of fair. I love that. That's when that's when conversations become fun. Um, because I, I'm I'm with you. It's tough. And I think that um one of the things that's been helpful is 
I'm a chess nerd. Did you know that? I oh, yeah. 19,000 games oh, on chess.com. Oh, yeah. So I've been keeping this chess piece here all the time. And so whenever I start to feel like emotions bubbling up, like, ah, oh, I don't want to do this and everything. I'm like, Kwame, remember, you're a strategist. There's a purpose. Everything. Life is a game. What game are you playing? You're playing the game of trying to have the biggest impact possible. Well, what's the best move? And I think we live life decision to decision. And the only responsibility we have is to make the best decision possible under the circumstances. And so for me, if I want to create a world that's more just and equitable and fair, um, then it requires me to make myself uncomfortable. And so I, I keep this kind of like as an anchor to remind myself that I just have to make the best move possible. And sometimes that doesn't feel good in the moment, but if I can make the move, then I'll make the move. But if I'm at a point where I'm so emotionally exhausted that I can't function, then I have to realize that advocacy fatigue is real. And the best thing I could do for the cause is to sit down, take a break, play some chess <laughs> and, and watch TV, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's room for both because our lives are long. Exactly. Exactly. So you've now been really up in this material for a long time because that's what it means to write a book. You went into it hesitantly. Where are you now with this material? I've fallen in love with the work that I've done here. I'm really proud of what I've created. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of um, self-exploration as well. I remember my, my book coach, Azul Terones, uh, with my first book, Finding Confidence in Conflict, he told me that if you want to write a transformational book, it has to be transformational for you too. And I don't enjoy being vulnerable, but I know that vulnerability is effective when it comes to getting the best out of me and creating true connections with others. So I really appreciate the work that I've created. And the reason I do appreciate it now more than ever is because as I've been sharing it, I've been seeing how well it's been received and how hungry people are for this type of material. And I think at the beginning, I didn't fully appreciate the potential positive impact of this work. And so I'm, I'm very happy with the work that we've created. That was negotiation expert Kwame Christian. Check out his book, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. So now it's our turn. This week, let's talk about the Compassionate Curiosity Framework and how we can use it. Join us this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for office hours. You can find us on the LinkedIn news page or email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. And as always, if you like this show, please follow and review it wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback helps us make a better show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. Sarah Storm produces our show with mixing by Joe DiGiorgi and help from Elias Avalos. Florencia Ariando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor have brave conversations with us. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. just want to back up and say, like, I got so much personally out of the read. I felt like I learned so much from it. And thank you. Oh, for that. Thank you. No, I, I appreciate that. I think um, my goal is to have the, the second best book release on the market. Um, 
my goal is to to be right behind. It's going to be tough, but like <laughs> right behind the family outing. That's my goal. 